two biological brothers formed the hip-hop duo named The Clips. This hip-hop duo, in 2002, they dropped the hit single called Grindin', and it swept the nation. I mean, it was being played on every radio station. Everybody was riding, riding to it, quoting the lyrics. I remember me and my homeboys, we used to quote the song and beatbox with our mouth to the very beat. I mean, this song was so cool. You see, the group, the Clips, they became some of the dopest hip-hop rappers in the rap game. Everybody wanted them on their songs and in their videos. You see, this group, they made it. They had wealth. They had fame. They had everything. But in 2011, things changed because the group broke up. And the reason why the group broke up is because Malice, who now goes by no Malice, repented of his sins and trusted in Jesus Christ by God's grace. You see, he left everything for Christ. The fame, the rap game, the family, friends. By God's grace, he forsook it all for Jesus. You see, he knew, just as all of us who are in Christ knows, that following Jesus is costly. You see, he demands our primary allegiance, and so we leave everything for him. And as costly as it is, what no malice and all Christians would say is that Christ is worth it. You see, what we gain in Christ is infinitely greater than what we lay down for him. And that is what we will see in this morning's passage. And so Mark chapter 10, verse 17 and 31, please stand for the reading of God's word. As he was setting out on a journey, journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel 
who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this present time, houses, brothers and sisters, mother and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this passage is following Jesus is costly, but worth it. Following Jesus is costly, but worth it. And I have three points from this passage. We will see the command of self-denial. the challenge of wealth, and the cost and rewards of following Jesus. We'll see the command of self-denial, the challenge of wealth, and the cost and rewards of following Jesus. And so our first point, the command of self-denial. Look at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, he is likely leaving Judea, and he encounters a rich young man known as the rich young ruler. And this man has heard about Jesus and knows that Jesus is a teacher. He shows reverence to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this is a good question. He is concerned about eternal life. He desires it. Who doesn't? I mean, who doesn't want eternal life? People who practice false religions desire eternal life. See, though they're wrong on what it is and how to attain it, But this man here, this rich young ruler, he knows of eternal life because God has revealed it in Scripture. Now, what is eternal life? It is participation in the life of the age to come. It is resurrected life. It comes from God and is received when we trust in Christ. Christians now, we currently possess eternal life and experience it in some measure as we await to experience it in full when Christ returns. You see, this rich young ruler, he's concerned about eternal life, and though his desire for eternal life is commendable, he should be corrected in how to attain it. You see, him and everyone who isn't a Christian believes that eternal life is achieved by works, which is the very antithesis of what Scripture teaches and what Christ said in the previous section. You remember in chapter 10, verse 15, he says, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, eternal life isn't achieved but received. It is not by works but by faith. You see, this man, he asked the right person the right question. And let's look how Jesus responded. Verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. 
No one is good except God alone. Jesus responds with a question of him, for himself. He says, why do you call me good? And he asked this because the adjective good shouldn't be used flippantly. You see, in our culture today, we always talk about how somebody is a good person. But Jesus is making known that God alone is good. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to call Jesus good has weighty ramifications because only God is good. You see, Jesus is not denying his deity. He's simply pointing this man to God who alone is good. And God is the source and standard of goodness. Scripture testifies that only God is good. Psalm chapter, 105 verse, Psalm chapter 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. Psalm chapter 119 verse 68 says, The Lord is good and does good. And you remember in Exodus when God made his goodness pass before Moses. You see, only God is good. And one is only good if they are as good as God. So may we be on guard against calling people good. Jesus goes on. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You see, Jesus here, he recites the second half of the Ten Commandments, which focuses horizontally on our relationships with neighbor. It was in this morning's scripture reading. You see, love and devotion to God is depicted in love for one's neighbor. You see, if we don't love neighbor, then we don't love God. Scripture teaches this. The first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus, he's listing the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, the command do not defraud is not in the Ten Commandments. It's an application of the Eighth and Ninth Commandment. And it's likely mentioned here because this man is wealthy, where he could be tempted to maintain his riches by defrauding his neighbor. Now, one may wonder, why did Jesus refer to the law? Is he conveying that one can merit eternal life? Absolutely not. Jesus is likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, where it talks about these commands, do this and live. You see, last week, Pastor John preached that the law cannot give life. We can't keep the law because of our sin. The problem isn't the law, but it's us. Rather, the law should expose one's own depravity and unrighteousness and lead us to see that we need a Savior. But let's see how this man responded. Verse 20, he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. This rich young ruler believed that he has obeyed the law. You see, if the law was a mirror, he looked into it and concluded that he looks good. And he says this because his focus is solely on external actions. He ignores the heart. 
You see, it's easier to conclude that one is blameless when their attention is exclusively on actions. But God is not only concerned about actions. He also is concerned about the heart. Jesus gets at this in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches that if you are angry with your brother, then you have committed murder in your heart. If you look at a person, a woman, lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. You see, God is concerned about actions and affections. He gets under the hood and checks the heart. You see, an impure heart means you haven't obeyed God according to his standards. And therefore, you're guilty and need saving. But this man, he believes that he has obeyed and he is wondering what else does he need to do. Look at how Jesus responded. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. You see, Jesus being omniscient, the son of God looks at this man's heart and sees his heart. Like an x-ray, Jesus sees what is hidden. And he does this because he is God. You see, all things are naked and exposed to Jesus. And though, though enthroned on high, he still sees the heart. We can't hide our idolatry from him. And not only does Jesus inspect the heart, he also exposes the heart. And he does this in love. It said that Jesus loved him. Y'all, Jesus had affections for this man. And it's important because we see Jesus' love for this man before we see Jesus' commands to this man. You see, the command that he's about to give is given in love. And all of Jesus' commands are given in love. And Jesus shows that he is God by what he says. He says, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The first thing he says is one thing you lacked. And the thing that this man lacked was sacrificial devotion to Christ. And then he gives the command, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Whoa. Is Jesus implying that this man can be saved by works? Preacher, I thought you said that all who are saved are saved by faith alone. What is happening here? Really good questions if you're asking those questions. It is true that all who are saved are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What's happening here is that Jesus commands this man to renounce his allegiance to wealth and to cling to Christ. You see, this, if he would have done this, repentance and faith would have been seen by his obedience to this command. You see, what Jesus is commanding is self-denial. And Jesus commands that all disciples deny themselves. 
Don't you remember in chapter 8, verse 34, where he says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, here Jesus spells out what self-denial looks like for this man. Looks like he will lay down his life for, he will lay down his wealth for Christ. And as he does so, he, Jesus promises that he will get Christ and all the blessings that are in him. And notice that Jesus teaches that eternal life is found in him. You see, when one embraces Christ, we receive eternal life. If you want treasure in heaven, it is found in Jesus and in Christ alone. You see, being the great physician, Jesus knows where to press us. By this demand, Jesus exposed this man's true allegiance, which was his wealth. You see, wealth was his God. And that's why he went, he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. You see, this man, he broke the first command, which was to not have any gods before him. And he broke it by placing wealth before God. You see, in this man's response, in his mind, the loss was greater than the gain. Jesus said, you will have treasure in heaven, and he'd much rather hold on to treasures on earth. He would rather hold on to what won't last and miss out on what won't fade. You see, though he owned many possessions, it was his possessions that owned him. His affections, his allegiance, and devotion. He couldn't depart with them, not even for eternal life. The very thing that he wanted. As we think about this, it's important for us to know that this specific command is descriptive and not prescriptive. Jesus doesn't command every follower to sell their possessions and give to the poor. Jesus does command that all of his followers deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow him. You see, when we trust in Christ, we renounce our allegiance to everything and pledge our allegiance to him alone. Our devotion is to be to Christ alone. And this is good for us to think through. Beloved, is that still the case for you? Does Jesus still have your total allegiance? Are you still denying yourself for the sake of Christ? Is he still your treasure or is he in competition for your allegiance and affections? What is it for you that if Jesus required you to renounce, you would be tempted to depart from him? Is it a dating relationship, comfort, a career, a platform? What is it for you and why? Beloved, this will be good to discuss with members and to help one another and pray for one another in this. You see, to be reluctant to lay anything down for Jesus shows that we have forgotten how infinitely precious he is and the promises that he offers. We're forgetting how much he loves us and how much he is for our good. 
Beloved, know that if Jesus required us to lay whatever down for him, he is loving us and it is for our good. You see, nothing should rival our devotion to Christ and keep us from following him. In the words of a Christian hip-hop artist, there's nothing worth keeping if it's keeping us from Jesus. It is not worth keeping. And so we've seen the command of self-denial. Well, now let's look at the challenge of wealth. Look at verses 23 on down. Jesus looked at Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus uses his previous conversation as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. He says that it is hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And y'all catch it? He said it multiple times. Now, why? Because the only way one enters the kingdom is by receiving it like a child, which he said in chapter 10, verse 15. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, children are insufficient and needy, whereas the wealthy may feel self-sufficient and perceive that they don't lack anything. And because they believe that they don't lack anything, this can easily translate to where they don't see their deep need for Christ. One may love and cherish wealth and believe that what it offers is better than what Christ promises. The very thing this rich young ruler thought. And all of this keeps the wealthy from humbling themselves, which results in them not entering the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to note that it's not a sin in and of itself to have wealth or to be rich. But having wealth and being rich can be dangerous and destructive. And the reason is because we are sinful. Scripture speaks to the dangers of wealth. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. There is a real temptation to love riches and wealth. It can become one's master. Jesus says that you cannot serve both God and money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, having wealth can be dangerous. The relentless pursuit of wealth and a relentless consumption of being rich is dangerous for the soul. Beloved, if we are enamored with riches and wealth, it is destructive. Those who preach the American dream, they ignore passages like this. You see, the notorious B.I.G. was right. 
The more money we come upon, the more problems we see. You see, the more money we have, the more we are tempted to love it and cherish the benefits. The more one is tempted to have their gaze set only upon this life. The more we are tempted to place our hopes and security not in the blood of Christ, but in our bank accounts. You see, wealth comes with challenges. Jesus says that it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, he says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, back then, camels were the largest animals in Palestine. And the eye of a needle was the smallest of holes. Have you ever tried to thread a needle? It's hard getting a string through the thread even after licking your fingers a few times. Oh, for real, try it. It is difficult. And if that's hard, then it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You see, here Jesus is not speaking hyperbole. He is literally saying that it's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now for us, it can be easy for us to check out right now because most of us would not describe ourselves as rich. But I would caution us from checking out because in comparison to the rest of the world, we are some of the richest people. And though there's a spectrum from a struggling college student who's living on ramen to a wealthy business owner, we're still some of the wealthiest people in the world. We rent and own homes. We own smartphones, have Wi-Fi, savings accounts, and more. We are wealthy. So in light of this, one may be wondering, is Jesus saying that it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God? Yes. That is what he is saying. He says it multiple times. And before we try to get to the what about isms, let's let that sit in real quick. He says that it is impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason is because sin has separated us from a holy and righteous God. Our sin has corrupted us to where we don't love him, we love his things. We don't worship him. We worship his things. We treasure earthly possessions. And there's no amount of good that we can do to earn eternal life. There's no amount of wealth that we can have to help us. And so if you're blown, by the, you're blown away by this and you have questions, know that you are not alone. And we're about to see that the disciples, they too have questions and are blown away. Look at verse 24. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? You see, the disciples, they hear this and their mouths drop to the floor. They're taken aback blown away. It's like being at a wedding reception 
and seeing a black man dance who don't have rhythm. You ever seen it before? You're probably shocked. <laughs> because almost everybody in here probably think that all black people got rhythm. Newsflash, we don't. <laughs> and as shocking as that is, that sight would be. The disciples, they're also shocked and taken aback because they thought that wealthy people were saved. You see, they thought that wealth was a mark of God's favor and evidence of salvation. Like Job, who was a righteous man and was rich. You see, Jesus here, he dismantles their conceptions regarding wealth and salvation. And what they're thinking, and they're thinking it. And so they're like, man, if the wealthy can't get in, then who can be saved? You see, they thought that the rich were a shoe-in for salvation, that they were uncertain about themselves and everyone else. You see, it's like if my valedictorian didn't get into Harvard, then I have no hope in getting in. And so they are alarmed and humbled, which leads them to ask, then who can be saved? They can't answer the question, but Jesus can and does. He says, look at verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. You see, the disciples, they see their inadequacy, and they're met with this precious assurance. It is impossible for the rich or anyone else to be saved by their efforts. No works can earn it. No wealth can buy it. We cannot save ourselves. Our best efforts are futile. But what we can't do for ourselves, God can and does. You see, God alone has the power to save the rich and the poor and everyone in between. Only God saves his people and brings them into his kingdom. You see, salvation is solely and supremely and exclusively a work of God. You see, Jesus emphasized that it's impossible for the rich to be saved, and then he emphasizes that only God can save. You see, what's too hard for man is not too hard for God. And how does God do it? Well, he sent his son to become a man, to bear the judgment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus lived the perfect life and died in our place and for our sins. We sung about it when we sung that it was finished upon that cross. God's wrath for our sins have been satisfied through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. And that's not how the story ends. Three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. And by God's grace alone, he saves sinners. The Holy Spirit regenerates us where we're given the gift of faith and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man or the will of flesh, but of God. You see, salvation is totally a work of God. Beloved, we depend on him and not ourselves or our wealth. Only Jesus can save. And by God's grace, 
He has saved all who have trusted in him. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad that you are here. Friends, Jesus literally means that it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God by your own efforts. No amount of money can buy you forgiveness. No amount of works can earn you salvation. If you were to depend on yourself, as I said earlier, your efforts would be futile. Only God can save and he offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who was the son of God who became man, who lived perfectly and died in the place of sinners and resurrected from the grave, if you humble yourself like a little child and receive the gospel by faith, you will be saved. If you want to know more, you can talk to any of our members after service. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be saved. You see, Jesus says that only with God is it possible for anyone to be saved. The rich and the poor and everyone in between. And so back to those questions you may have had. Is Jesus saying that it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God? By our efforts, yes. But by God's grace and power, no. From this one may have wondered, if that's the case, then should I evangelize to people who are wealthy? To which I would say absolutely. Because by God's grace and power, he can grant repentance that leads to salvation when the gospel is proclaimed. Beloved, he saves the rich and the poor by faith. Solely by his grace, he grants repentance. One may be wondering, is Jesus teaching that Christians can't be wealthy? As if being a Christian and having wealth are categorically opposed to each other. No. In fact, there were wealthy Christians in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19 says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And so as Christians... Christians in America, who are some of the wealthiest Christians in the world, we should enjoy all things, and that includes money. It's his, and it is from him. And we should also steward it well to the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel. We should be rich in good works, being generous and willing to share. Beloved, has wealth, like, beloved, having wealth comes with many temptations. It can be ensnaring. So we must guard our hearts from being consumed with wealth and it becoming our master. Beloved, know that our bank statements are theological statements. 
they reveal what we treasure. And what do your bank statements and your budget say is your treasure? Do you struggle with being ensnared with wealth and the materials you get from it? If so, who knows and is helping you? You see, wealth is ensnaring it can be, and it can do damage to the soul. And this, too, is an area where we should seek accountability. If we're struggling with wealth and materialism, we should seek accountability. This should not be a private matter. We do this with other sin struggles. We struggle with sexual sin, we get accountability. We struggle with drunkenness, we get accountability. But in America, if we were to struggle with materialism and wealth, we just see it as a private struggle. We don't want to let people in on it. Beloved, it should not be that way with the church. As destructive, Jesus, as destructive as wealth can be, that scripture testifies, is we should be all the more urgent and all the more, yeah, all the more urgent to seek accountability in this area if we struggle with wealth and materialism. Beloved, may we pray for one another in this. And above all, may we cherish the gospel and be consumed with Christ, not our wealth. And so we've seen the challenge of wealth. Now let's look at the cost and rewards for following Jesus. Look at verse 27. Verse 28. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. And so once again, Peter speaks up. He comes at Jesus strongly. Where I'm from, they say that he came at Jesus sideways. And he tells Jesus, we left everything for you. Family, finances, occupation, everything. They pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And so Peter is like, man, do they gain nothing for leaving everything for Jesus? Now, what's ironic about this is that Peter reminds Jesus of what they've left for him while being ignorant of what Jesus left to save them. You see, the disciples left their family. Jesus left the Father. They left their boats. He left glory. Beloved, the Son left everything to save us by becoming a man and dying in our place and for our sins. He laid down his life that he may bring us into his glory. Beloved, if Jesus can lay down his life for us, then we can lay down everything for him. And though Peter came at Jesus sideways, let's look at how Jesus responded. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, Jesus didn't respond with a rebuke, but with a promise. All who in faith have forsaken their allegiance to family and others for the sake of Christ and the gospel will be rewarded in this life and in the age to come. 
You see, to forsake all for Christ demonstrates one's faith and trust and allegiance to Jesus. You see, following Jesus is costly. We are to love him above all and forsake him. I mean, forsake all for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. Our comfort, security, our allegiance to family, all of that takes a back seat to Jesus. He is who we treasure above all. He is our God and King, and he loved us and gave himself for us. And so we are to love him with our whole heart. We lay it all down for Christ. And with that being said, let me address the children and the teens real quick. Children, I know that you love your family. I know you love your mom, your dad, your siblings, when they're not upset with you, when you're not, when you're not upset with them. And as great as a thing it is to love your family, there is one who you should love more, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the Savior who loves you. He died for sinners and resurrected from the grave, and he saves all who trust in him. Beloved, if your parents are members at this church, I can guarantee you that your parents would want you to love Jesus more than them because that means that you are a follower of Christ. And there's nothing more that a Christian parent would want for their child than to trust in Jesus Christ and love him more than anyone in anything, including themselves. And so I would encourage you on your way home, ask your parents about why is it a good thing to love Jesus more than anyone and anything. You see, beloved, here we see that following Jesus is costly. You see, forsaken family, it can be really hard, especially since some of your families aren't Christians. And following Jesus may cost you your family. And as hard as that would be, which is really hard, it is part of counting the cost to follow Jesus. We are to leave everything and cling to him alone. Beloved, Jesus has no divided disciples. Where it is hard, Jesus will give grace He will strengthen us to obey him. And as costly as it is, Jesus is worth it. He doesn't let us stay focused upon what we give up for him. He tells us what we gain in him. Behold the promises. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children, or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now and this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. You see, in these promises, Jesus isn't promising prosperity, but provision of shelter, family, and fellowship. You see, what we give up for Christ, we gain much more in Christ. We leave family, and in Christ we are brought into a new family, an even greater family. 
You see, when God unites us to Christ, we're united to his people, the church, the household of faith, a family that loves Jesus and will help you follow him. Jesus made known in Mark chapter 3, verse 33 through 35, that his family consists of those who does the will of God which is repenting of sins and trusting in Jesus Christ and following him for all of our days. Beloved, the Lord has made us a family. NBC, we are a family. And we need each other. And we'll certainly need each other because Jesus also promises that persecution will come for following him. Did you catch it? He says, houses, brothers, and sisters, mother, and children, and fields with persecutions. You see, we will suffer persecution for the sake of Christ because the world hates him. Just as Dallas Cowboy fans are maligned by everyone who hates the Cowboys, though we're not on the team, we identify with them, and so they hate us because we're Cowboy fans. And so Jesus' followers will be persecuted by all who hate Christ because when we follow Christ, we are united to him. We identify with them and they hate him so that they hate us who are in him. Beloved, if we're unashamedly following Jesus, we will be persecuted. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 says, For it has been granted to you that not only for you to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. That persecution, it may come from family, friends, or co-worker. It may be social where we're verbally berated for following Jesus. It may be physical where we're put to death because we love him. But we are sure that we will suffer. So we'll need to comfort one another and encourage one another to endure. And we also need to remind one another that Jesus is Worth it. We are to walk by faith and not by sight, believing Jesus, believing in Jesus and his promises. Notice what Jesus promises. He concludes with and eternal life in the age to come. Jesus promises eternal life in this age because we've trusted in him. We look beyond this life and we await the life to come. This is resurrected life with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and a new earth where there will be everlasting joy in his presence, experiencing the fullness of joy for all of eternity. Beloved, behold the cost and the rewards for following Christ. We follow him because we've trusted in him, and in him we get all things. Jesus is worth it. The famous quote by the missionary Jim Elliott He says that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, the rich young ruler, he was foolish to hold on to his riches and miss out on Christ. Beloved, may we not make that same mistake that he made, but may we forsake everything and place our trust and hope and cling to Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 says, For he has counted everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He counts it all as rubbish that he may gain Christ. Jesus is worth it. And notice the bookends of this passage. 
chapter 10, verse 17, the rich young ruler, he came asking about eternal life. Chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus promises that those who forsake all for him will have eternal life. You see, eternal life is found in Jesus, who is himself the eternal life. If one repents and trusts in Christ, which is depicted through forsaking all for him, they'll have eternal life. Following Jesus is costly, but he is worth it. Let's pray.